Okay. Hey, Psalm 119, 65 to 80. Uh, that's our, those are our verses. So if you got a Bible, you can follow along. There's, there's not going to be up on the screen for you today. So, um, all right. So last week, last Sunday, the passage we looked at uh, in this chapter, the, the sections we looked at dealt with an issue that, you know, it's, it deals with hard things, right? The, and, and it just dealt with affliction, uh, the, the, the sufferings we experience in life. And I love that the Bible is honest about these things. And it brings us to Jesus in the midst of afflictions. And the, the, the main kind of direction that the passage took us last Sunday was that in affliction, we receive comfort from Jesus and from the people Jesus puts around us. And we get to give that comfort that we receive to others. Right? And so we, we dealt with that. We talked a lot about affliction, but we talked about comfort and, and how these things work together in the gospel. And, and today, uh, the, the passage is going to continue talking a bit about affliction. It's going to continue to address this issue of human suffering, but it's going to take it from a different direction. And we're going to look at something a little fresh, kind of in the same realm as last Sunday, but we're going to go in a different direction direction because the passage takes us in a different direction than the ones prior. Um, So here's what we're going to see, and I want you to hear this. I want you to to know that this is what we're going to see in the scriptures today. Um, Nothing in your life, nothing that you experience, nothing that you suffer is meaningless. It's not. It's not meaningless. Everything you go through has a purpose by God to do something in your life. No suffering that you experience is worthless. It's used by God for a purpose. It's it's all used by him to do things in us. And listen, that's not a, a super common understanding of suffering in our current culture. We, we tend to have bad things happen and then we immediately start to pivot towards, well, why didn't God stop this from happening? Or why did God do this to me? And we start to blame him and put the, put the uh, responsibility on him and, and then begin to kind of twist and, and orient our minds against him because we're hurting And I'm not saying that that's never like an appropriate response, I guess, in in a moment, right? I'm not saying you have to be some super spiritual person that never doubts or questions. Not at all. But we can't stay there. We can't camp there. We have to to move past that to to understanding that that the afflictions we experience are not meaningless. They're used by God. They have a purpose. And and what we're going to see today is that the purpose of God flows from the character of God. God's character, who God is, leads to what God does. So look at verse uh, 65 and 66, and then we'll skip down to verse 68 for a minute. We're going to do a little bit of bouncing here 
not maybe we're not working our way through it as linearly as we normally do. We're going to do a little bit of skipping to verses here, but look at verse 65, 66, and then 68. It says this. He says, you have dealt, God, he's speaking to God, right? You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgments and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Look down to verse 68. The psalmist says, you are good and do good. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. So these verses talk to us about the character of God, right? Who he is, what he does, how he, how he treats us. He deals well with us, verse 65. Verse 66, it, it declares his character is good and he does good. And we might be tempted to think that in reading this, we're going, okay, yeah, God is good. We know this, right? God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. We, we believe that. That's true. That's right. But, th- but we don't always believe that in the middle of difficulty and affliction. But the context of this passage is that these things are true even in the midst of affliction and suffering. Look at verse 67, it says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Look at verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Look at verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness, You have afflicted me. So these three verses in this passage are all dealing with affliction. And in between those verses, he's talking often about the suffering he's experiencing at the hands of others. The insolent, the difficult, the the challenging people in his life. Those that want to harm him and hurt him. Um, So again, we're seeing this kind of worked out. But, But here's what you're seeing. Affliction... Is, is not a proof that God is not good, but rather God meets us in affliction because he's good and he does good. And so what we're seeing in this text is the, the three verses we just read, right? 70, 67, 71, and verse 75, each give us three purposes or meanings for suffering and affliction and how God uses them. And so real quickly, we're going to work through each of those, and I'm going to kind of take us to the New Testament uh, in, in that as we look at each of these main points. And then we're going to go back to Psalm 119 and, and look at how the grace of God meets us in affliction, because I think that's where much of the text goes and takes us. So, but let's look at those three things. And this may not be a, um, a complete list of things that God does through affliction, but it's a great starting point. And there's at least three things he does as he works his goodness in and through affliction. Let's look back at verse 67 and we'll camp here for a few minutes. Look at this. It says, before I was afflicted. I went astray. 
but now I keep your word. So what's he saying? So before the suffering came into my life, what was happening? He went astray. In other words, in his seasons of comfort, he actually left the Lord, but it was through affliction that God drew him back and allows him to keep God's word. Here's the thing. This is an amazing thing. I think you've probably seen it in your own life. I know I've seen it in mine. God uses hard things, afflictions, suffering, whatever words you want to use for that. He uses those things to draw us to him. And this is so crazy because affliction can have the opposite effect, right? It absolutely can. There are lots of people who have walked away from the Lord because of affliction. But God's purpose for affliction is not to drive us away from him, but to draw us close to him. C.S. Lewis, uh, in, in his book, The Problem of Pain, um, I, I've, I've referenced this quote before many, many times through the years. It's one of my favorite quotes from Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, in this book, he's, he's explaining how we can reconcile human pain and suffering with a, with a good God. It's really worth a read if you ever, if you read and want to dig in. And maybe it's not like for the first book you've ever read. It may not be, be what you need to jump into. But C.S. Lewis has some great stuff. It's gold. Now, I don't agree with all of it. There are things that I'm like, eh, I don't know if I'm completely on board with that. But there's a lot that's great. And one of the things he says in there is just a quick quote. He says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is God's megaphone or his bullhorn to rouse a deaf world. So Lewis's point is this, God's always speaking to us, but in, in times of good you know, pleasure and, and things are going well, you know, we're just not hearing him much. He's whispering in those things, but we're not, we're not eager to hear him when things are going well. Why? Because we don't feel we need him when things are going well. We can slip really easily into self-sufficiency when everything's going great. It's just human nature. So God whispers in our pleasures, but then he speaks in our conscience, right? Our conscience is there to give us a direction, right and wrong. And God puts that in every human heart to understand, at least on a base level, what's right, what's wrong. And we, we can hear God speak through those things. But what he, where he shouts to us, where he gets his bullhorn out and screams in our ear is through our pain. Our pain is meant to rouse us from our deafness as we go through life. Lewis was well aware of this in his own life. He suffered incredible pain and he saw how God used those things throughout his life, the many ways that God uh, brought him through suffering and it drew him closer to the Lord. God, God uses pain and affliction to draw us to him. And the reason for that is because suffering gets us to rock bottom. Like you have nowhere else to look but up when you're at rock bottom, right? 
So when your legs are kicked out from under you because something unexpected swoops in and harms you, whether that's a financial crisis in your life, whether that's a relational crisis in your life, whether that's a health crisis in your life, these things have a way of kicking the legs out from under us, knocking us on our backs, and, and forcing us to look up to someone beyond ourselves. It puts us in a place where we realize we cannot help ourselves because so much of life is unpredictable and so much of life is is unknown until it happens to us. We just get hit broadside oftentimes and then that's where Jesus meets us, draws us to him. It's amazing. I think you've probably seen it in your life. Maybe not. I'm not going to speak for you, right? I don't know all your experiences, but I think many of us have seen that. All right, so that's the first thing. God uses affliction to draw us to him. What's the second thing? Verse 71. What does he say? This is, a, this is crazy, right? He says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Okay, <laughs> I don't know if any of us would say that. But he says, it was good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I might learn your statutes. Statutes is a fancy word for his word, his promises, his, what he says, right? So let's follow the train of thought. He says, it's good that I was afflicted so that I might learn what you have to say to me, God. In other words, God uses affliction to teach us. One of the purposes that God uses for suffering is to teach us. We, you know, hey, we're, we're thick-headed people. We really are. Right? We're sinners. And because we're sinners, we got a lot of junk that's kind of clogging up the ears and, and the, the mind. And, and so God uses affliction to instruct us, to teach us, to mature us, to grow us. And I think all of us have different things we have to learn, right? And, and that's, this is a part of the, the deal. This is a part of the process. Let me take you real quickly to Hebrews chapter 12. Um, Hebrews 12, verse um, 7 through 11, talks about this. Um, and I think it's, it's helpful that we see it in the New Testament as well here. Um, so Hebrews 12, 7, it says this, um, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, as children of his. For what son is there whom the father, whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not a son. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. Did you catch that? He disciplines us for our good. So it was good that I was afflicted, right? The writer of Hebrews is using the word uh, discipline, but who's ever been disciplined and enjoyed it in the moment? None of us, right? 
No, no, that's not the point of discipline. If, if your children enjoy discipline, you're doing it wrong, okay? That's, that's just how it is, right? Discipline is meant to be something unpleasant in a, for a short time, for a short time, and appropriately, okay? We're not talking about abuse here. That's a totally different thing. And discipline is meant to get our children And as we were children, we experienced discipline to help us learn and grow, right? That's the point of it. It's to instruct. And so he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So that we might actually grow to be more like him. And then look at what it says, verse 11. For for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Trained, you could also translate this word, instructed by it. So here you're seeing the New Testament affirming this thing that the psalmist is saying, that it was good that we were afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. This This is something that is, it's not like, Again, it's not enjoyable. No discipline is enjoyable in the moment. But later, it yields the, the righteousness, the fruit of righteousness, right? That's what the, book, that's what the Bible says. So I, I'm not saying that you're going to necessarily wake up <clears throat> one day and just know exactly why God disciplined you and that it's just going to be tidied up. There's probably, <coughs> excuse me, there's probably a long process of learning through your afflictions. Okay. God uses affliction to draw us to him. God uses affliction to teach us. We got one more, but let me take a drink here because otherwise I'm just going to be coughing. I, that happens, you know, it's kind of crazy. Okay. Um, let's try that. Look at verse 75. He says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. <coughs> in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That's, that's pretty crazy. Right, that's mind-blowing. Like, okay, so follow the train of thought. I know that your rules are righteous, and that in your faithfulness you, he's speaking to God, you have afflicted me. Okay, <laughs> again, we don't see a lot of this in our common language and, and culture. We, we don't want to blame God for our afflictions. And I think part of that's because we have incomplete theology. Uh, God doesn't uh, cause us to sin, but he does l- allow things into our lives that may seem harmful that may be unpleasant. God does afflict us at times. But it's not because he's faithless, and it's not because he doesn't love us. It's actually in his faithfulness that he afflicts us. It's in his faithfulness, or it's in affliction that he shows us our, uh, his faithfulness. Excuse me. <coughs> Man, it's going to be a rough sermon. Here we go. Um, so let me take you to one more place here. 
Uh, John chapter 11. John chapter 11, if you want to turn there. This is, this is pretty interesting. I, I came across this not, not too long ago here, and I was like, okay, this is interesting. I'm not sure if we would have categories for this. So um, this is a long story. Chapter 11 is a long chapter. There's a lot that happens. We don't have time to read the whole thing. But let's get the, let's get the overview. <coughs> he says this, Now, a certain man was ill, sick, right? Lazarus of Bethany. A guy named Lazarus is sick. He's from the town of Bethany, the village of Martha and Mary. And we're told that it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Okay, so the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So Jesus gets word, Lazarus is sick. And, you know, they sent that word and it, they probably assumed, okay, he's going to rush over here and heal him. He says, verse 4, but when Jesus heard, uh, heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Okay, verse 5 and 6, look at this. This is, this is really the crazy part of the story. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. These were his friends. He loved these people. Look at that next word at the front end of verse 6. It's just two little letters. So, all right. Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He loved these people. So, what would you expect to come after that, right? You'd expect, so he rushed to Bethany to heal Lazarus, right? But that's not what it says. It says, so when he had heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay, does that compute in your brain? <laughs> I'm not sure it computes in my brain. I'm like, going, wait, wait. Okay, Jesus loved these people, so he decided to stay two more days where he was and not go to Lazarus. What's going on there? So a bunch of stuff happens here, a lot of conversation. We're going to have to skip down to verse 11, though, just for the sake of time. It says, after saying these things, Jesus said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go wake him up. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So there's a disconnect, right? Jesus kind of speaks in a little bit of a riddle here, and they're going, well, if he's sleeping, he's going to wake up. Why do we have to wake him up? And Jesus was actually talking about how Lazarus had died. And so verse 13, it says, or 14, so Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that he was not there, that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let's go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. They did, the disciples didn't want to go to Bethany because the, the Jewish leaders were after Jesus by this point in his life, and they were afraid. 
that he was going to die. So Jesus decides to go and the disciples go with him. Now, verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So he was dead, dead. I mean, he was, he was dead. He was in the tomb. He was already put in the cave. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Look down at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, when we sent for you, he wouldn't have died. But, she says, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So there's faith in her. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Then let's skip all the way down to verse 38 here. It says, Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He's been dead four days. It's going to stink. Like, why would we open this thing up? That's it's not, what's, what's not what we do here, right? And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. That's crazy, right? right? Dead people don't come out of the tomb, but he did. His hands and feet were bound with the linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Now listen, that's a long story, and we actually skipped a whole bunch of it, but look, look at what is happening here. Jesus is showing through affliction his faithfulness and power to save. <clears throat> he's, he's showing that he can do the impossible. But the, to do that, he had to wait two days before he went to their, help, to their aid. He let Lazarus die and all the sorrow that comes from that so that he could do an even greater thing. Could Jesus have shown up to Lazarus' bedside when he was ill and say, hey, you're healed and just had all this be back to, to normal, right? Yeah, he could have. He absolutely could have. He did that for many other people. He healed lots of people. But he let Lazarus go all the way into death. Why? So that the the primary power of God to bring life where there is no life could be accomplished and people would believe. So here's the thing. We, I think a lot of times when we suffer, we think about 
um, God's response like an ambulance, right? So everything kind of goes crazy and it's terrible. And then God shows up and tries to put everything back in order, right? And he's like, okay, I got to fix this. This is a problem, right? He's like, we treat him like he's an EMT, but he's not an EMT. God doesn't operate that way. He's not surprised or suddenly this is thrown, thrown at him and now he's got to go deal with it. God doesn't operate that way. We think of it that way, but that's not how God works. God is more like a surgeon who recognizes the root cause of the problem, schedules a surgery, does the painful work of surgery. If you've ever had a surgery, you know it is not a pleasant experience, right? There's a recovery that has to happen. There's scars. They cut you open. Like, this is not a pleasant thing. But the surgery is meant to heal you fully, not just respond to a crisis. EMTs are very important and necessary parts of society. I'm grateful for them because we live in a world where things unexpectedly happen and we need help, right? But God doesn't have to respond the way we respond. God knows it all. He recognizes it all. And he has a plan to bring about the fullness of his faithfulness to you. He uses affliction to prove that to us. Okay, so quickly, let's go back to Psalm 119. Let's, let's look at three more verses. And I think these three verses show us how God meets us in the midst of our affliction and does for us what we've just seen. He draws us to himself. He teaches us what we need to learn from these things. And he shows us his faithfulness. Look at, look at what he does to meet us in these things. Verse 73 says, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. God creates us. You are here on earth today because God made you. He fashioned you. He created you. God meets you through making you and bringing you into life. God creates you. Look at verse 77. Let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. God creates us and then he recreates us. Right? He gives us mercy which brings us life through Jesus. This is what Ephesians chapter 2 talks about, that we were dead in sin but God made us alive together with Christ. God created us for our human life, for our, for our physical life, and he recreates us for spiritual life through mercy. He gives us mercy that we may live. And then look at verse 80. It says, May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame. The third thing that we see in this passage that God does to meet us in mercy and grace is that he gives us blameless hearts in Christ. He takes away our shame. He takes away our sin. He removes it and gives us the righteousness of Christ. That is how he meets us in grace. And affliction is meant to point all these things out to us. Affliction is meant to show us that he is not withdrawing, he's not removing, but he's actually drawing near to us to bring his grace into our lives. 
Let's go back to what we started with. There is nothing that happens to you that is meaningless. God has a purpose for it all. His purposes may be painful for a season, but they're for your good. I I came across a a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. So uh, this is, he's got tons of sermons. He preached for a lot of years and I got a little book. It's called Talks to Farmers. Uh, It's kind of interesting. It's by Spurgeon's sermons collected around kind of agricultural themes. Like Spurgeon was a country boy. He preached in London, but he hated London. (laughs) He really did. He hated London. Uh, He wanted to be out in the country. He grew up in the country. And so a lot of his sermons had agricultural imagery. And I think, you know, a lot of us understand that. And so this, this little book, Talks to Farmers, is just a collection of his sermons kind of centered around those themes. And um, I came across one. I've been reading kind of one every, every uh, time I have a day off. I just read one to work through it. And um, I came across a passage from it that I just thought was helpful. It's from a, it's from a sermon entitled The Plowman. And uh, the it's based around one verse in the book of Isaiah that says, does the plowman plow all day? And the first half of the sermon explains how, yes, he does plow all day. And then the second half of the sermon explains how, no, he doesn't plow all day. It's kind of interesting. Uh, and and here's, what, here's what a paragraph from it. I think, it's, I think it fits with what we're seeing. I hope these words encourage you as they did me. It says, Spurgeon says, it may be, that in the case of some of you, the Lord has been using certain painful agencies to till you. You are feeling the terrors of the law or the bitterness of sin or the holiness of God or the weakness of the flesh. Is this going to last forever? Will it continue until your spirit fails and your soul expires? Some of you might be asking that, right? Like, is your suffering going to last forever? Listen, Spurgeon says, does the plowman plow all day? No. He is preparing for something else. He plows in order to sow so does the Lord deal with you. Therefore, be of good courage. There is an ending to the wounding and slaying, and better things are in store for you. You are poor and needy. You seek water and there is none. You are thirsty, but the Lord will hear you and deliver you. He will not contend forever, He will turn again. He will have compassion on you. He will come and cast in the precious seeds of comfort and water them with the dews of heaven and smile upon them with the sunlight of his grace. And there will soon be in you a blade and then the ear and after that the full crop and in due season you will rejoice in the harvest. You get what he's saying, right? Tilling the soil is a painful business, 
but it's meant to lead to the sowing of seeds, which leads to a harvest of righteousness. God may be sending you through suffering right now, but it's not forever. It's for a season. It's for a time. God has great things in store for us through Jesus, the greater things than we can imagine. And we just got to keep our eyes fixed on that. Keep our eyes firmly fixed to Jesus because he has a plan and a purpose to use suffering to draw us to him, to use it to teach us, to use it to show his faithfulness in it. So let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you that you have loved us with an eternal love that that sent Jesus to the cross. We thank you that you have helped us even now to hear from you. I pray that these words land on our hearts exactly how you want them to land and that they are helpful for us as trouble is always around us on one level or another. We need the comfort and consolation of Jesus, and we pray that your grace would do that for us. I ask you now as we respond through singing, as we respond through partaking of the Lord's table, God, that you would meet us even now through the words we sing together, through the remembrance of your body and blood shed for our sins. I pray that we would find our satisfaction and comfort and joy in Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection for us. Would you draw our hearts to these things and we pray it in your name. Amen.